who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we have Payam Banazadeh, founder and CEO of Capella Space, which aims to build a global satellite-based radar network to solve problems in areas like agriculture, infrastructure monitoring, and disaster response. Before founding Capella Space, Payam worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Here's Payam. I thought a lot about how to make this a little more useful, and if I were in your shoes, which I was, how this would have been a little more efficient. So I'm not gonna talk about Capella, uh, and I'm not gonna give you a marketing presentation on what the company does. Look up or come talk to me afterwards, happy to talk about it. Uh, but how many of you know about Capella, actually? Let me just, okay, that's actually pretty good. Um, I thought I would talk about, very quickly, maybe just over 10 minutes, of the first few months of starting the company and, and give you a glimpse of the stressful times and the, and the uncertainties that existed every day in, in those first six months. And then hopefully we can get into some Q&A and, and dive deeper into any, any, any other topics. Um, a little context on Capella, very quickly, uh, we are trying to build an infrastructure around our planet in space using satellites in order to monitor our planet and observe changes. Uh, believe it or not, this doesn't really, really exist. I mean, we have certain capabilities, but there are a bunch of gaps um, that, that requires, in, my, in our opinion, uh, to be changed. And the reason we started the company was this. How many of you remember uh, MH370, which was a Malaysian flight going to China and it just disappeared? Right? Um, I think this was around 2014. I was at Stanford, and um, everyone was looking for this plane for multiple weeks. I mean, I mean if you were watching the news outlets, uh, this is all that people were talking about across all the channels. There were multiple governments, you know, superpowers, China and U.S. and Russia, with all of their assets looking for one plane. And it was not a small plane. It was a 777 with 280 passengers that just went missing, and we couldn't find it. And at that time, we were thinking to ourselves, wow, why is that? Why is it that we couldn't monitor that area? And why is it that on this one planet that we call home, such a big plane could go missing and we have nothing that we could do about it? And so we just started asking questions um, of why is that? What are we doing and, and how are we doing? And we thought it was really important. We thought uh, monitoring this one planet uh, and this one home that we have is really, really important. So we started taking classes at Stanford. We took a class called Hacking for Defense, which was taught by Steve Blank. Um, and it was all about customer discovery. Um, our vision was we want to live in a world where nothing goes missing, where we can monitor all these important places around the world. Um, and if something does go missing, we can go back and we can look at it. Um, so in parallel, outside to the class, we're sort of doing technology development and conceptual um, uh, feasibility of can we actually build a satellite that can do that, it could see through, through the clouds, can see at nighttime, could it be small enough that we could launch an array of them and, and build a business out of that. We took a class with, with Steve Blank and it was all about customer discovery. And the class, the question you're asking in the class is, um, imagine you did build that, so what? Who cares about that? What is the market? What are the opportunities? What's the business? And um, after 10 weeks of uh, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty tough challenges by Steve. Uh, we thought to ourselves that this would be interesting and there's a big opportunity in it. So we went out and, and we decided to do fundraising and start the company. And I, as I was kind of thinking about this talk, I digged my notes and I found a whole bunch of pictures from three years ago. There's actually a whiteboard that we, uh, in, in the venture studio at GSB. 
And we were trying to figure out how much money we should raise. Um, and you know, it's like it's super high level, it's super basic. Looking back at it, I'm kind of sort of embarrassed. Uh, but we're like, you know what? If we raise 200k, uh, we have one objective, and our objective is to essentially retire some of these risks and then go back to investors and say, you know, we did look at it. We're the right team, and this is the right idea, and we know we know how to build this thing. And the major things that we wanted to to de-risk, and I think every startup that starts, these are the four pillars that every investor is going to look at at the very beginning of the company. One is the technology risk. Sorry for the handwriting. Um, one is the technology risk, right? Is, is, your technol is this technology actually feasible to be built? Is, are, are, you, are, you, are you dreaming of something that is feasible or not? Um, and for that, we wanted to uh, use our summer. This was sort of a three-month uh, period that we had. We wanted to use that summer and build a small little prototype of the hardware and fly it on a helicopter and demonstrate that we could actually build such a, such a little prototype and execute on it. Then there's the product risk. Okay, well, for us, the product and the technology was slightly different because we had to launch these satellites, capture imagery, and then the imagery had to turn into a product. Well, can you actually do that? Uh, then there was the market risk. Imagine you do have the tech and you do have the right product. Is, there, is this actually a big enough market for venture? A lot of businesses are not, and that's totally fine. But is this a big enough market for venture? So we wanted to talk to a whole bunch of customers, um, get uh, letters of interest, and, and show that if we did this, people would be interested in consuming this type of imagery and information. And then there's the sort of company risk or team risk, which is, is this the right team who's going to be able to bring the technology together, execute on the market, and, and, and make, take this to the finish line? And then at that point, like early on in the company's life, the company risk, the team risk, is all about the people. And I had this one investor that told me, um, I am really not looking at the business model because I know the business model is going to change. Um, everything that you're doing from now until the final product, how you get there is going to be vastly different than what you're proposing now. I am looking to figure out if this team is the right team that when they hit the wall and you know, when things don't work the way it's intended to, does this team have the ability to sort of go around it? And so by trying to do this over summer, we raised about 200K. Uh, we went out, we raised a 200K, and we wanted to, to retire some of these risks. We came back to the venture studio, super excited, 200K in the bank account, never seen that big of a money in my bank account. Um, let's plan out the 10 weeks. And, and, uh, and again, like apologies for the handwriting, and some of these are embarrassing when I look at it now. We even had this, um, we had this little org chart up there, and there are a bunch of C-level positions, which doesn't really make sense. It was just three of us. Um, <laughs> We were, we were trying to really figure out how do we organize and how do we split these responsibilities and what are the things that we need to do over the next 10 weeks um, to get us to the finish line. One big lesson I learned from this was um, nothing went as planned. Uh, we, 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 we needed more money. We needed more time. And none of these weeks actually ended up working the way we planned it. Um, and, and our story this entire 10 weeks was all about, wow, we wanted to do that this first week. We're in week zero, and we are not able to make that happen. What do we do now? And how do we go around that? Um, and um, we got the money. The first thing we did was we went to Fry's, and we, bunched, we bought a whole bunch of electronics. And yes, Fry's do still exist. Uh, there's one in Palo Alto. And we started breadboarding. That's, that's, uh, that's my CTO right there in the corner who was trying to build a little breadboard and a little prototyping. And our goal was to build this little prototype and fly it on a helicopter. And so we spend the next 
sort of uh, six to eight weeks uh, trying to build that thing. Um, and it was incredibly difficult. It doesn't look as complex as it should, uh, but it was really, really hard. And I remember this moment um, vividly. This was probably one of my most stressful days of my life. Uh, we, had, we were sort of at the very end of trying to put this thing on a helicopter. We rented a helicopter for the day. And it was expensive. It was like 500 bucks a day. We had it for the entire day. And you know, when you have like only 200K, that's a lot of money. Um, we showed up there. And we wanted to just one final test before we put it up on the helicopter. And the thing wasn't turning on. Um, and it was like, oh my God, this is, and every single problem, you gotta, you gotta like put your, every single problem was an existential problem. It, you know, because it's like, okay, well, I have a limited amount of time. I'm gonna run out of money. If we don't take it to that finish line, then we're done. Like there's not, well, what are we gonna do? Um, finally got it working, put it on the helicopter, uh, flew this thing and realized, oh snap, actually a helicopter is not the right way of doing it because it's bouncing so much and the, the pilot can't really hold it steady, and the images are not going to look that great. And this was literally like one week before we had our deadline to meet with investors and show them that we were the right team, and we had you know, de-risk and retired, all these other things that we had been bragging about for 10 weeks. And so we, we, we were super scrappy, and we went with a Cessna, and we had this super sketchy box at the bottom that we wanted to strap around the wings of the Cessna and put our instrument in there and fly it. Um, no one in their right mind wanted to do that. I mean, we went to every single airport within the within 100 miles of here, and we wouldn't like no one wanted to do that. So uh, we found this little tiny airport. Uh, bless their heart, love them to death. Um, and the guy was like, "Yeah, I'll do it for you guys. You, you know, you look like students. They're doing some cool stuff." Um, he did. We flew this thing. We went up. Uh, we took our imagery. As we were coming down, uh, we kind of crash landed. Um, the pilot wasn't really that good, um, and kind of explains why he was totally down to do this. Um, so we crash landed. Uh, we were obviously okay. Um, super stressful time, and we ran out of the runway. And then they had to call a pickup truck to come uh, to come grab us. Um, this, I mean, I hadn't thought about this for almost three years because life has just been so fast. But the crazy thing isn't that we crashed. The crazy thing is we came back home. We looked at the data. We weren't really happy with the data. So we called the guy, and we decided to go on the same plane the next day to do more collection. Um, and I didn't tell my mom. I think she's going to watch this later. Sorry. Um, anyway, so we went back, and we did the collection. It worked out. It was great. I actually have a little video of me and my co-founder sitting um, in the pickup truck that's towing the, the, the plane. And I thought it would be. Depends on our velocity and stuff. I need like eight, ten seconds. Yeah. It's my CTL. And that's like, we're just chilling here with the plane completely broken. Uh, <laughs> Holy crap. This pickup uh, truck right here. Um, that's how we do it at Capella. That's right. <laughs> that's how we keep it still. Yes. Anyway, we had a good time. Uh, we did make it to the fundraising meeting, and we were able to raise money. And now it's three years later. Um, and I want to show you a video of our first launch of our first satellite, which happened in December, uh, December 4th. Uh, we're a company. We're about 60 people now. We, our headquarters in San Francisco. We've raised more than 50 million of venture uh, from good investors around here. And this was the moment where we launched our first satellite, and we were seeing the rocket getting lifted up. 
and, uh, and our satellite getting deployed. And um, if you've worked on something like this for three years, it is like your baby, and it's very, very emotional for everyone who's involved. Um, so let's watch We're this. We're at Capella Space Headquarters in San Francisco, and we built a satellite. And our satellite is sitting on top of uh, Falcon 9 in Vandenberg right now. It's about to launch. Five, four, three, two, one. because we, we are still super, super early stage. Uh, but it's been a fun ride, and I'm excited to get into a little more conversation about it. Let's hear it for the successful launch, people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing about space in general, right? It's still one of these areas that can still capture the human imagination in a way that other things can't. How did you fall in love with space? When was this? When did this happen for you? I was involved. I got involved with this the most nerdy, non-athletic uh, program um, called Astronomy Olympiad, and it has nothing to do with the Olympiad that you might think. Uh, it's it's a bunch of high school kids um, who are passionate about stars and how universe and galaxies are formed and how they collide and how satellites go around, and we would throw these. Um, these star parties, and again, it has nothing to do with the party that you, you, you might imagine. We would go in the middle of the desert uh, with telescopes, and we would look at the stars and try to map them. And we would compete. There was like serious competition between different high schools on who could um, remember or um, recognize more names and who, who had better equations figured out to, to solve problems. Um, and at some point, I realized astronomy wasn't my, my best. Uh, I wasn't as science-y. I was more of an engineer. So I switched into aerospace. But, um, but I think it, it's not that hard to look at space and totally get you know, fascinated, because there's so much that we don't know. Um, you know one of my favorite quotes is, um, somewhere, out there, so, somewhere out there, something incredi incredible is happening. It's waiting to be discovered. And we're so lucky to be able to be part of that. I mean, that, it's funny you talk about things that people don't know yet and, and the piece of discovery. What does the general public actually not understand about trying to create a business that involves being in space? I mean, what's different about that? Well, they say space is hard and they really mean it. Um, you know, if, if 10 years ago you thought about uh, starting a space business, it was just un, unthinkable, right? Because you had to be a space agency of a government or a country. Uh, and you had to build everything from scratch, right? You had to build your ground stations and the network and the dishes and you know rockets were super limited and and you had to build every single little piece that's going to go into your satellite to take it up. Um, 
now it's quite different. I mean, over the last seven years, I would say, there is an entire ecosystem built around space. And I think majority of the, uh, the public hear about SpaceX, which is fantastic, but there's so many companies that are attacking and grabbing different parts of the supply chain, whether it's you know companies trying to build just pieces and parts that goes into the satellite, whether it's companies that are building uh, dishes that then allows these satellite companies to receive data, uh, whether it's companies that are doing storage or analytics or companies like us who are building the satellite and the payload itself. Um, there are so many commercial companies out there where now as a, as a commercial provider, you can come in and you can specialize on just one piece without really needing to build everything else around it. And that's creating this sort of massive movement that we're seeing um, on, on entrepreneurs jumping on the space opportunities. Um, and you couple that with the fact that um, space has been traditionally in, in sort of in hands of governments and, and these agencies who are extremely risk averse. And as a result, um, there are technologies that just never made it to that, to that sort of side of the fence. We have some customers, we have some competitors. Uh, if you want to order imagery from them, you have to fax them. Um, like you have to physically have a fax. Uh, in 2019 and be able to fax them to get an image, right? And so the opportunity to do a 1,000x improvement as it happened already in software hasn't happened yet in space. Um, and, and so I think that's attracting not only a lot of investments, but also a lot of entre entrepreneurs and, and people who um, have good ideas on how to do things slightly different. And so I think it's changing, but um, you know, the, the, the perception of how space has been over the last 10 years um, is going to be drastically different 10 years from now, too. It's really kind of encouraging, because you think about something as, uh, even aerospace engineering is even this, this sort of separate field. A lot of people probably go, well, I'm not going to be able to do that or hack that, so I'm going to go do something else. But th there's opportunities to be had there. I mean, you did your undergraduate in aerospace, and then you came here to Stanford uh, and got a master's here in management science engineering. Uh, being that you saw opportunities, uh, why management science and engineering and versus maybe an MBA or something like that? Um, well, so I, I didn't want to do aerospace again, so I actually came in as a, as a master's student for aerospace and I decided to switch to MS&E because I thought I, I had a pretty solid aerospace background and what I didn't understand is business and I didn't understand you know, finance and accounting and fundraising and what, is, what does it mean to start a company? What is a company? I didn't know any of that stuff. And I did think about GSP versus um, MS&E. Um, MS&E made a lot of sense uh, to me, mostly because um, it's such an open-ended program where you can build your own journey and you can take whatever classes that you think fits the specific needs that you have. So I had a whole bunch of MSNE students who are deep into finance right now working at hedge funds. I have some that are deep into computer science and are product managers, and I have some that are doing supply chain and operations, and then I have some other ones who started companies. And all of them took the same degree, and, uh, but, but the outcome of the degree was quite different. And so I liked the sort of um, unstructured um, MS&E program. Um, it was also quite cheaper than um, an MBA. So from a return of investment uh, standpoint, it, it made a lot of sense to me. We were the value price offer. I'm very excited to hear that. I'm sure, I'm sure our friends across it the street. It still wasn't cheap. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> right. a cheap degree. So. I mean, we've had speakers come in here before who were alums, and they talk about like a critical component of the Stanford experience is, okay, the courses are great, faculty's great, you know, the environment's great. But like, it's the side projects. It's those little things that you carve the time out for where all the kind of collective passions smash into each other. 
I mean, you took advantage of a bunch of different things here. You mentioned Venture Studio earlier. You were also a fellow in our DFJ kind of master's program. What did you get from those sorts of experiences? That yeah, I, I would say it's the side projects, all the all the classes and programs, as well as the people. Right. I mean, there, you, as you're just walking across campus, you just get inspired by meeting random people that are also doing really interesting stuff. But the classes, specifically the DFJ and some of these other programs that I took, um, allowed me to kind of know the way for fundraising specifically, um, allowed me to um, have more confidence as I'm talking to an investor because I knew what they were looking for and what the process is like. And, uh, and most importantly, allowed me to create a network and connections to then when I actually did want to raise money, I, I had a few people that I could reach out. Um, and I had a bit of an experience on, on how, to, how to do that. Um, and so I think, you know, and you'll hear this from the GSP MBA students, is one of the best bang for the buck that they get is they build a great network of people, right? And so when they leave Stanford, they've got this sort of almost like a family core group that they can reach out. Um, and I really tried to build the same thing, even though I wasn't part of GSP. And that was, you know, just take as many of the classes, meet as many of the people, and, and be able to, uh, to build a foundation where I could, you know, I could uh, not only give back, but also uh, receive some if I needed to. It's interesting you kind of mentioned the community aspect of that being important. And I mean, in your career, you know, you had this opportunity, if I understood correctly, you know, you worked at, at NASA JPL and, you know, Jet Propulsion Lab down south. And it, it's like an iconic place, you know, in, in this field. What about that environment did you, you know, you spend enough time there to kind of know what are things that uh, existed in that world that you have taken to Capella? And maybe what's something, not that it's inherently good or bad, but you just decided that's not for us, that's for them. Yeah, so JPL is a magical place. It, it, they built all the, um, all the essentially robots that we've ever sent into, in, into, uh, into space. Um, the, the one that you guys might be familiar with is, is the Mars rover, the Curiosity rover that landed, I believe, in 2000, maybe uh, 12. Um, just magical place. And, and I think, you know, I obviously learned a lot of aerospace there and processes and management. But what I took away the most was uh, this mentality that anything is possible and it's just, a, it's just an engineering challenge. And so if there is someone that wants it, something, we, we can make it happen. And that was so much of the mentality at JPL. Um, I mean, for God's sake, we built a rover that was one ton, and we used a sky crane to, to literally put it down on the surface of Mars, right? Like, who imagines that? And then, and then who can actually build that? So I guess my, my entrepreneurial um, uh, the reality distortion came from JPL, um, and that was really helpful. I thought anything in the world is possible. And, it, and, and you do need a little bit of sort of naive, ignorant thinking when you're starting a company. Um, that's what I took away, and there's stuff that I didn't take away, right? So JPL, um, what I didn't take away from there is uh, the sense of perfectionism. Um, and anything that JPL builds needs to be perfect, and it needs to work the first time. And, um, and if it takes us 10 years and $3 billion to do it, we will do it that way. But it will be a perfect product. Um, and, and I left that right there. Um, and, and so what we do at Capella is we try not to be perfect. Um, and we try to uh, be quicker and we try to, to bring sort of this, what's been known in the software industry as agile software into hardware and aerospace, which is really, really difficult. But, um, you know, what if the first one doesn't work the way uh, that the ultimate product, you know, I, I'm going to learn so much more through that process uh, and it's going to cost cheaper and it's going to be faster. And, and so 
Um, that's something that kind of left, left me on at JPL. I mean, you've had this experience now three years in. Um, you know, founding and founding with a team together is really interesting, but you're in this role as CEO as well. Uh, what is the what is actually the best part about being CEO? Because everyone always uses pictures about how hard and difficult it is and challenging. But what's something that's really like that you thrive on? That's exciting about that role, and maybe something that's been let's say more surprising. Um, the surprising and the challenging part um, is also at the same time really exciting part. Is that um, usually only problems make it all the way to to the top, and so. You know, if, if if a problem is solved, you're probably not going to hear from it. Um, and and the problems that do get to the top are problems that weren't able to get solved. And so you're always on a day-to-day -day basis trying to solve problems that are really, really difficult across multiple multiple departments. And some of them are existential problems, especially as an early-stage startup company. Um, and, and, and on a daily basis, you're trying to put out fire. Of course, as you're building the company, you're becoming more stable. Hopefully, there's less of that. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, as a CEO, that's been one of the most stressful parts of the job. Um, and then the sort of, you know, sheer amount of responsibility that you feel and I feel um, towards my team. Because when we started the company, it was just me and, and my co-founder. Uh, it was just the two of us, right? We're doing this for ourselves and, you know, we'll see where it goes. Who knows where, it, where it's going to go. Uh, but then now we're 60 people and people have families and some of them, we recruit them from out of state and they're moved here because of us. And so... Um, it's not just about me anymore, right? It's, it's about people's um, careers and their, their beliefs and their, you know, their uh, confidence in us to make something ha happen of this. And so that's pretty stressful. Um, I think what I love about the job uh, the most is uh, the ability to change. Um, I think one of, the, one of the most important personalities of a founder or a CEO um, in a fast-growing uh, startup is uh, ability to adapt and be able to change very frequently. Because, you know, the, the CEO of a two-person company and a 10% and a 30 and 50 and then 100 is going to be a vastly different job and there are different responsibilities. And if you're not able to adapt to the new roles and the new requirements and grow with the company, uh, then it's going to be really difficult. But I, I have sort of taken that at heart and... Um, it has changed me personally at a personal level, but it's changed me at a professional level. Um, and I've really enjoyed um, kind of, um, you know, seeing that change over the last three years. Do you find that that's something that then you are in your team is looking for when you're hiring and stuff? Are you looking for that same adaptability and agility in the people that you bring in? Or are you looking for other things to complement that? That's, yeah, it's, it's critical. I mean, you know... It, when we, when we were a company of 10, right, the culture was different. It was a lot more um, agile and, you know, the way we were just doing things, there was, there was no org chart, there was no handbook, there was no process, there was, we're just doing things as a team. There was one credit card we were literally using as a team, okay, you need to order that, go for it, you know. And as the company has changed um, and, and grown, all those processes have changed because they were not scalable anymore. And I think one of my important roles as a CEO is to reiterate to my team that change is okay. And change is actually um, not only okay, but highly desired. Um, and because, and, and you know, there, you know, change is difficult, right? Like, I mean, if you're used to a certain, certain way, then all of a sudden, you know, everything is changing, then you're kind of panicking of what happened. And so I try to infuse that to the team, every, you know, every two weeks, every all hands talking about how 
this did change. We used to do it that way. We're doing it this way, but that's totally fine. This is how it's supposed to be. And, uh, and I think if you're trying to join a startup, uh, you got to enter the environment knowing that everything's going to change very soon. Um, and so I've told people, if something is not working today, um, it will most likely be fixed three months from now. So let's just work it out. Let's just get together, talk about it, because um, there's a bunch of stuff that's not working, right? I mean, it's a, it's growing pains of, you know, building a building a company that's growing really fast. Um, and so, if you're not okay with change, it's going to be difficult. And so, we we certainly look into that when, when we're hiring new people. You used this wonderful example early on in the presentation about the, the Malaysia air flight. And I imagine, you know, we, we've heard repeatedly from people about the things, the reasons that someone might go to work for a company, right? And why this place versus this? Where do you find your connection, your why about that place's mission? What are some of the things, either through the years where you were talking to prospective customers and things like that, what are some of the use cases you see from a social perspective that successfully being able to use this technology, getting enough satellites in space to build that kind of network of, of, of visibility, what are some other examples that you see in maybe different sectors or something of impact in that way? Yeah, so I mean, we're excited about a whole bunch of markets uh, when it comes to building a, a, a sustainable business, insurance, finance, maritime, security, agriculture. Uh, but when I step back and I think about some of the big problems that we're having here on Earth as species, um, you know, you, you can't not realize that a lot of our problems are are very global problems, right? I mean, if you if you compare us to you know a thousand years ago, some African tribe in the in the Sahara Desert. Um, they really didn't care about the politics of Asia or conflicts in the Middle East or deforestation in Amazon. In fact, they probably didn't even know that existed, right? But now we're living in a world where um, an event happening in U.S., you know, policies of U.S., politics of Asia and the conflicts of, um, of Middle East and, and, and some of these other problems are highly connected and they influence everyone. They impact everyone. And so it's a much more globalized world that we're living in. And in such a globalized world, our problems are also going to be at a global level as opposed to sort of these isolated uh, problems, you know, nuclear challenge, technological advancement, and how that's going to affect us all. Um, and most importantly, that's close to my heart, is ecological, you know, climate change. Um, and so in a world where everything is so globalized, I think we do need a capability as species to be able to look at the globe and understand when something happens across, you know, in Brazil, how does that actually impact Southeast Asia, when something does happen in North Pole, how does that actually impact Europe? And be able to connect the doc, dots and, and the links. And, and building an infrastructure in space, which by definition and by nature is a very global um, observation, I think is going to be really critical. And if you just pick sort of the climate change um, problem that we're going to be facing, we know that there's going to be more extreme weather, right? We know and we're seeing some of that already. There's going to be more tornadoes. There's going to be more hurricanes. There's going to be uh, rising water um, oceans. There are going to be people that are going to be displaced. There's going to be more migrations. There's going to be agricultural production issues. These are issues that we will have. I mean, even if we today try to solve climate change, some of these we're already seeing. And so in that type of a world, I think, again, it's really critical for us to have a non-terrestrial based, right, because those things are going to get destroyed, um, capability and infrastructure where as things are happening in London or in Houston, Texas or in Singapore, uh, we have eyes in the sky to monitor as it's happening to help people move, uh, to understand the damages, um, and then ultimately be able to, to, to look at how our planet is changing over time. So I think 
it's a capability that we should have at species, um, and, and we want to be part of that. There's really kind of a very beautiful call to that. It makes you think of sort of like the first pictures of Earth from space, right? You know, this sort of collective sense that was not available to people before because they didn't know it existed or they didn't have it. I mean, you're running a business as well here, and, and commerce is a part of that. How do you, um, when you go to like go for customers in this space, what is sort of the strategies here? I mean, we've had folks who've developed apps or they've got other sorts of businesses of all different stripes uh, that they've affected on. What is the customer development process like in terms of like going out in your team, your BD team? How do you approach that? What did you have before that you still use now? Those sorts of things. Yeah, it's, it's uh, because we're building a capability that's never existed before. Uh, it means the market also doesn't exist for, for that you know, capability. Um, and so the, we have the company's sales team sort of divided into business development for new markets. Um, those are markets that don't really exist, but we believe that once the capability goes up, there are a bunch of really interesting things we could do. And then the sort of sales to uh, the market that does exist and use imagery and they've been using. And turns out this market is mostly a government market because governments, you know, they're used to this stuff. They've got a 30-year head start. Uh, the first imaging satellite was launched uh, a long time ago, Econos, and and so they know how to use satellites and how to use imagery, and, and they've got a bunch of need to be able to look at a lot of a lot of areas. And so this is more of a sales cycle. You know, we're we're coming with a new capability, but the requirements are well defined. Customers, uh, customers are there, um, and it's a very traditional sales. Whereas this new one, the business development is is very much so. A, we're approaching it from uh, bottoms up and tops down. So we're doing a sort of a. a very similar to what we did at Steve Blank's class, a, a proper customer discovery where we go out and we talk to people and we, we, we try to really understand their problems. And the typical questions we ask there is, um, you know, when we're talking to a CIO, a chief information officer or a CTO, you know, you ask questions like, what keeps you up at night? Like, what are the things that, you know, if you had $5 million of an R&D budget, where would you spend it? Um, and, and with, you know, through those conversations, we're trying to figure out uh, what are like fundamental problems that these guys have um, and, um, and then we come back and we, we, we try to see if we can solve them. And, and, you know, one big thing I learned from Steve's class was, uh, you never bias the conversation, right? So you don't, you never show up and say, I've got this great capability, uh, would you use it? Uh, because, because then you're, you've immediately biased them. Um, if you can, if they tell you their problem and it turns out that your solution could solve their problem, jackpot, right? Because now you've got a customer that didn't know that you had this, but they told you that that was the problem. And so for the BD side on the new markets, there's a lot of conversations in these different markets, and we're quite organized about them. And, and uh, you know, we go to agriculture and farmers, and we try to categorize and, and go and try to create those markets. But um, creating a new market is very difficult, and it takes a long, a long time. Because uh, you got to roll out the product, you got to demo it, you got you know, to demonstrate that it's actually useful to them. It's going to move the bottom line. Um, and then you got to figure out how are you going to blend yourself into this workflow that they've had for many years. Um, and so it will, it will take us a while to get there on the new markets, but we're super excited about a bunch of use cases we've found. And meanwhile, uh, while we're doing that, we're going to work with um, some of these existing markets, which are mostly around governments. It's interesting, like you think about the comparisons between a small firm and a large firm in this space, and you know, you think of traditional players, incumbents here, about probably these enormous research and development budgets and stuff. How does Capella do research and development? Or are you just busy like, we got to get these first, however many it is. What's the total number for the network in the first sort of? Ultimately 36. 36. Is it just, dear God, just get the 36 up? Or is it, there is some space that's already kind of looking beyond that? Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> that's a classic startup problem. Like there are too many things that you want to do, but you don't have all the resources to do it. So how do you how do you put them on a list and rank them? Um, but you know, I, I think you know a couple of things I think about a lot. One is when we talk about our, our sort of competitors, um, they're massive companies, big you know big ships. One of our competitor competitive advantages is that they're a big ship, and it will take them a long time before they can actually do this, and it will take them a lot of resources before they can change the you know the the direction of the ship, and, that, and we use that as a competitive advantage. So the question is, how do we not how do we make sure we don't fall into the same trap and some other startup doesn't come in three years from now and say, you know what, these guys are a big ship. Uh, we've come up with this really new technology that's 10x better than them, uh, and we're going to disrupt them. So how do we not get disrupted? Um, and I think if you're too focused on just your V1 product, um, then you're going to miss the boat. And so even though you know we've only launched one satellite and we haven't rolled out all of the other satellites that we want to do, uh, we do spend you know, 5 10% of our, our resources on thinking about the next um, iteration, whether it's you know the sales and the BD and the marketing team talking to customers and kind of bringing all that feedback into to Capella, and uh, and then we sort of analyze and say, okay, well we can't do this with this product, but it seems like we're getting a lot of feedback on this, and we should add it to the next feature, um, or we're just having you know some interesting R and D that we're doing on our own and see see where it goes. I think it's really important to allocate a little bit of budget um, and resources on doing that early on and and build a culture of that, right? Because I mean. Um, you know, when we launch 36 satellite, it's not like we're going to be done, um, and, and we just we have to keep the engine going. So I, I think it's really important. But it's all about balance, right? How much of this do you do versus that? And I imagine you're still getting kind of feedback as you go out to customers. There's new things that keep appearing, right, in that same frame. I mean, when you guys first sort of identified, you know, where the pain points were, I mean, you did something sort of interesting. And I'm going to go deep out of my technical depth here, so save me if I fall. But the synthetic aperture radar technology has been around. How long had that technology been around? For a long time, 40 years. 40 years. Yep. So was it something that you saw sitting there on the shelf that's like, geez, why isn't nobody using this? Or was it something about, no, it's just the lack of the continuous reliable imaging? What was the first kind of understanding that the hint, the, the first strongest hint you got from those customers? Yeah, so SAR has been around, as you said, for a long time. Um, and it's mostly been used as a military and government tool, right? Because it's a, it's the way it works is it's a radar imaging system. And so it can see through clouds, it can see at nighttime. So it's a sort of a very reliable imaging system. Um, and, and, and honestly, I, you know, the vision was we want to build a constellation of 36 satellites in order to monitor places every hour or better. And in order to do that, these satellites need to be really small. And then, and then the problems were, OK, well, all these satellites are really big. Um, so how are we going to make them small? And this is where the sort of the, uh, the, um, the, the delusional founder comes in and the reality distortion comes in. Um, and we're like, wow, well, I, we think we can actually build a, a really big structure that can fit in a tiny little box. But then once it goes up in space, it just, well, just deploys itself. Um, and people have probably thought about that for a long time, but no one, no one believed themselves that that's possible. Um, and so we believed ourselves. We thought we, thought we had it. Um, and so we saw an opportunity. I mean, we, we did a whole bunch of design, and we, we thought it was doable. But we, we thought that you know, it, it, is, it, is, it is totally doable, and, and people are not doing it because they're afraid of the potential risks that are involved and, um, and the hard work that, that you got to put in. Um, so far, it's worked out. Um, yeah. So let's open it up for other questions. Anybody have questions for Pine? In the back? 
So, uh, can you describe a little bit where exactly the IP in your company lies and, and how did you get to that? And then also make some comments on the cost uh, of satellites. Why did you decide to do that in cost versus Maybe restate the question. Yeah, where does the IP lie in, in the company and which part? And then why do we uh, make a decision to build our satellites in-house? Um, so the IP at the very beginning of the company um, was mostly sketches and designs um, and how we're going to do things. I mean, we, we didn't come out of a Stanford lab where we, we had our own IP. Uh, we, had a, we had a creative idea on how to package things um, and we thought that um, you know we could execute on that really nicely. Three years later, we have a whole bunch of IPs, right? We've built pretty much every single piece that goes into our satellite ourselves. Um, and so whether it's the antenna that we you know that deploys or or the electronics that goes in there, we built everything from scratch. Um, and the reason that we decided to build everything uh, from scratch was um, the status quo out there wasn't really good enough. And so we did go out there, and we did just want to buy a satellite and just put our little sensor on it. Uh, but it either was too big, or the performance wasn't really what we wanted, or, uh, or it was too expensive. And in some occasions, we did work with some other partners um, to build specific parts of our satellite. And we realized that working with vendors is really, really painful, uh, especially as a startup that's trying to grow really, really fast in a very tight timeline and budget. No one cares about this as much as you do. And so at, at that point, we, you know, we decided to have sort of a vertical integration and build everything in-house. In and it's been, it's been a good decision so far, because going back to sort of that feedback loop between customers uh, and bringing it back, uh, we have probably iterated our satellite seven times over the last two years, um, just based on feedback from customers, right? I mean, we had some hypothesis at the very beginning and we decided to build that satellite. But then once we started hiring more people and they were out and they were talking to customers, we realized, oh, well, actually, if we did this, um, then you know, it would change our market by this much. And, and then we went back literally to our lab and we made that modification. Where if we were working with some other partners, that would have been really difficult. Um, and then on top of that, space launch launches uh, to get stuff in space is very unreliable. Um, our first satellite was supposed to launch November of 2017, it actually launched December 2018. So that was a 13-month delay for our satellite. And um, if and what we did was we were like, okay, we have extra 13 months. Let's disassemble the satellite and upgrade it. Um, and if we couldn't do that, then we would have been pretty much dead, right? I mean, we were sitting um, and doing nothing. Um, so. Your logo is really interesting and unique. Can you share the story behind it? Oh, God. Uh, do you want like the true story or the marketing no, story? It's quite unique, quite frankly, yeah. and it's, it's, it's attention grabbing. There's nothing out there like it. Yeah. Coming from an engineering background, and to get to something that is uh, you know, quite extraordinary, I'd love to hear the story about it. Yeah, so, so we hired this marketing firm, and we paid them a lot of money, and we did. And, uh, and you know, they were kind of just like analyzing us and figuring out who are we? Like, what's our identity? What's our value? And they came up with this cliche, new perspective. We bring new perspective because we're doing things differently. And then goats stand out because Capella in Latin means goats. Um, also turns out Capella is a constellation, you know, Capella is a constellation of stars and yeah, it used to look like a goat back in the day. And goat is also a new perspective. Like, you don't find a space company that has a goat. Um, <laughs> 
just doesn't make sense. Um, and so we picked the goats. Um, the goat looks like a unicorn also. Um, it, that was not intentional. That was, we had some, someone design the goat and it, it was like a magical goat. Um, but now it doesn't really look like a goat. It's like a unicorn. I mean, I, I, people ask like, why, why did you pick a unicorn? I'm like, no, 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 it's a goat. Um, and, um, so that, I mean, that's, that's the story behind the goat. Great job. To be clear, Capella Space is not technically yet a unicorn. Uh, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> but no, just no, want to no, just no. clarify. Yeah. Um, so... Um, when you're like building a company that has, uh, in the, right now in the world, that's something like that doesn't exist, right? Some of the companies, especially at Capella, on, on some level, is along those same lines. Um, so how do you get people interested, or especially like investors? How, because like, you're doing something completely crazy, and how do you get around that? Um, well, it's it's a bit of an aspirational story that you have to tell. I mean, it, it's a it's a storytelling. What you're doing at the very beginning of the company, where you have no data points, is storytelling. Um, and what helped us a lot was when we took the Hacking for the Fence class with Steve, we had a pretty good story because we had interviewed roughly 300 potential customers and Steve had made us write a blog about every single interview, right? So we, we would literally write a blog of the interview, what, what did we learn, who was it, and what did they say? And, uh, and this was a private blog only to the team. So when we went to do fundraising, we gave them the blog. Right. So like go check out what these people are talking about. Um, everyone is saying, you know, if you could build the capability where I can monitor anywhere in the world every hour, uh, this will change my operations, my industry, how I do things. And so building the story and, and majority of it is just go out, talk to the customers. Right. Like, you know, the so what question is more important than the technology. Um, and then obviously the tech has to support it. But uh, going out and talking to customers and be able to build that story for the investors is really, really critical throughout your journey. How do you stay quick and adaptable if you're also trying to do the all in-house vertical integration? And why is the balance of that so seemingly towards the lab? Um, I would argue that the only way to actually stay quick and adaptable is to have full control of uh, a lot of your processes and build and hardware and everything that goes in between. Because um, again, like we've had experience where, um, you know, vendors have other priorities, right? Other people have other priorities, other customers, you know, someone else comes in three months in and, you know, they give them a better contract and now that that becomes a priority. Um, and, and so having full control of your supply chain and having full control of your build um, allows you to, if you do need to cut corners, to make that decision and cut corners, right? Like, I mean, and we did that. Um, you know, at some point we had to um, say, well, you know what, we're not doing these two testings, or actually we're going to patch this up because we don't have time. Or, you know, those are the decisions that you, you, you make as a startup on a daily basis. And so the more separation you have between where, where you could execute on that uh, by having someone else working, working it out, uh, the more difficult it is. Now, like down the road, when you've got it figured out, um, does it make sense to outsource a certain portion of the company and the hardware build? Maybe. Um, and and that, at that point, it's an OPEX, CAPEX question of, you know, where do you spend your, your capital? But I think early on, we did make the right decision to keep things pretty close to us. You want to pick out the last question? Oh, God, that's tough. Go for it. Thanks. Uh, I was wondering if there are any periods of certainty you could talk about over the course of your journey, and also if there's any kind of major pivots from your initial vision. Uh, so points of uncertainty, um, a lot. 
Um, I mean, there have definitely been lots of times where um, we were dependent on one test or we were dependent on this one customer or we were dependent on this one investor um, or we were dependent on, you know, make, making, making three things happen at once. Otherwise, this other thing wouldn't happen. Um, so many, I can't really pick actually one. Um, and, you know, obviously, as you grow the company, you want to have less of those uncertain moments happening uh, in your journey. We had a lot of them early on. We had, a, I mean, that first three months was every day was uncertain. Um, then we raised a seed round, and it was a little less uncertain, but there was a, still a lot of uncertainty. And even to this day, I mean, we're you know, um, you know, we've raised more than fifty million. We're post B round or sixty people. There's still risk. There's still you know uncertainty about how certain things are going to fold out. Um, but then having a plan B and a plan C and a plan D, um, and being able to navigate through those as they happen is is the critical important part. Did you add a second question there? Up on that, like, have there been any kind of major uncertainties about your actual vision itself, besides just like encountering problems along the way from a time where you like, oh, I don't know if that's on the right track at all? Mm. You know, the big vision hasn't changed much. Uh, the big vision of providing a, a transparent, accessible, uh, global monitoring service um, and be able to open that across the world for many different has changed a little bit, right? You know, and, and those are very tactical strategies of, okay, we're going to build three satellites first, then we're going to do 12, then we're going to you know, put these on these. Right? I mean, those tactical things have certainly changed dramatically, but uh, the end goal hasn't changed much. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production supported by the venture capital firm DFJ. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.